This podcast is not intended to provide any investment advice. The opinions expressed here by either the hosts or guests do not necessarily reflect the views of PSA, Collectors Holdings, or any of their affiliates. Any discussion of collectible values in the past or present is not a guarantee of future performance. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the PSA pod. Ryan Green and Steve Sloan coming to you here from the NBA Jam studio at our PSA headquarters, and we are just going to dive right into it this week. We are super excited to be joined by Kevin Keating, principal authenticator here with PSA DNA. We have really been looking forward to getting Kevin on this show for an extended chat ever since we began this show, and you guys are about to uh, about to find out why. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to join us here on the PSA pod. We are incredibly excited to have you because this is going to be a really, really thrilling discussion for collectors. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, Kevin is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, autograph expert in the world. And beyond that, just a great guy, a treasure trove of stories uh, regarding his life in not only collecting, but in sports at large and, and pop culture for that extent. Uh, his book has recently released. It's volume two of Waiting for a Sign, highlights and inside stories from a lifetime of collecting baseball autographs. And it's it's a series of stories of his interactions. And I'll, we'll get into some of these here, Kevin, um, with with some of the great names of the Hall of Baseball Hall of Fame and, and the world of, of sports and, and, and culture. We have to start with the title, though. So waiting for a sign. And I love this story because it, it really gives color to your background and your life of collecting autographs. If you could, could you explain how the book got its name? Sure. So uh, by the time I was in eighth grade, I had been collecting autographs for a few years. And before that, I was just a collector at large, right? I collected coins. I collected stamps. I collected rocks. I did. I guess I was born with the collecting, Jane. But when I was introduced to baseball in 1969, I was living outside of Chicago and I fell in love with baseball. I fell in love with the 69 Cubs. They were supposed to win the pennant that year. They started off 11 and one, and then they fizzled in mid August. And this team called the miracle Mets came out of nowhere and stole the show from them. And I, it was, a, I didn't realize at the age of 10 that I was actually sitting in the front row watching really an epic year of baseball history unfold before my eyes because I didn't have any perspective at that time, but that was my introduction to baseball. So I fell in love with baseball. I fell in love with um, the Cubs. I wanted to become a big league player and I started collecting baseball cards. Um, I didn't know how to collect autographs quite yet, but by 1973, I had you know, through different means, learned how to write the players and care of the Baseball Hall of Fame, which I did routinely. And all I had to do was send a nice letter, um, some index cards or whatever else I could throw in there, a self-addressed stamped envelope, and basically everybody answered their mail. Um, so I would get five to ten things signed typically in a, in, a, in a letter that I would send out. But I was limited by my budget, and I also would budget money to go to the hotel um, because my father had discovered that the, the hotel directly across the street where he worked in the Loop in Chicago was the home of all the visiting teams that came into town to play the Cubs and the uh, and the White Sox when they came to town. That's some key information for a collector right there, knowing where the players are going to be when they come into town. Exactly. And back then, you know, everybody thought you were weird doing what I did. And um, I loved 
meeting the players and getting their autographs in person. That was like the most thrilling thing for me. And a crowded day at the hotel getting autographs meant that there might be one or two other kids there. I mean, you know, it was an anomaly. I was, I was considered a weirdo for what I did. And on this particular day that we're speaking of, getting back to how I got the title for the book, um, the, the Cubs were going to play the Mets that day. And I had an arrangement with my parents that if I kept my grades at a B average or above, they would give me, they would let me play hooky about one, one day every month to go get autographs in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it was great being there on a school day. It was (laughs) great being there on a school day because Nobody else. We, we should also it. mention that Kevin is incredibly busy in his role as a <laughs> principal authenticator. Yeah. So, this yeah. is, this is, hey, it happens. Yeah, it okay. happens. So that was my phone, phone, my fault. Anyway, getting back to the story, on a school day, if I was there, nobody else was there because they were all in school. So I happened to be there, and it was so cold in Chicago that day. They actually called the game, mm. which was awesome. I mean, I froze my butt off, but. I, w- I was able to be there all day because the team never left, right? They never left to go play the Cubs. So I ended up standing out there all day long. Well, meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, the Chicago Sun-Times building was directly across the street from the hotel. And a, and a what was then a fledgling lighter who later became quite famous, Bob Green, who already had his own column in the Chicago Sun-Times, his office was facing the hotel. So on that particular day, he noticed this kid who happened to be me standing in front of the hotel, and he kept looking out, you know, several times over many hours. And every time he looked out, I was just standing in the same space because he didn't happen to see me encounter a baseball player. And when you're chasing autographs, you're actually stationary, right? You take uh-huh. a position and you wait for something to happen. It's like playing a baseball game. You have it's it's almost all in action, occasionally broken up by silent, you know, sudden violent movements to the body. So, you know, you're standing there. I took my spot. I'm waiting for a player to come out. Well, Green never saw me move. So finally, he's like, "I got to go see what this kid's doing because what's he doing on a school day, standing on the same piece of concrete all day long, and it's freezing cold outside." So he comes up, introduces himself, and starts asking me questions. You know, what are you doing here? I told him. He's like don't you have school today? And he, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, you're not at school. Do your, do your parents know, you know, what you're doing? And I said, yeah, they actually, um, they wrote a letter saying I'm homesick, but they're letting me, you know, do this instead because, you know, I, as long as I keep my grades at, at a B average, they let me do this. And as soon as I said that they'd written a note, excusing me and saying that I was homesick, he, he pulled out his little pad and he's like, do you mind if I do my column on you in the paper <laughs> tomorrow? And I said, No, of course, you know, by all means, go ahead. So he observed me for about 20 minutes, watched me get a couple autographs, um, asked me a bunch of questions, and then he walked off and he said, I'll be sending the photographer over here shortly. And I, when he left, I thought, I wonder if that was really, you know, who he said he was. I didn't know. But this guy comes over about a half an hour later, and he's got this huge camera with the big old, you know, silver disc for the light (laughs) and everything. And, you know, this is like, 1973 technology back then right so he he walks up to me and goes hey you the kid getting autographs and i'm like yeah he goes i gotta get some pictures of you can you grab a player and i'm like i can't grab a player you know so the doorman was very kind paul sheehan and paul had gotten to know me pretty well by then and he's like look i'll go in and get yogi bear i think he's in the lobby well he goes in and yogi's not there yogi's gone upstairs so he goes 
Yogi just went upstairs. He goes, but uh, Jim Fergosi's there. Can we can we use you know how how is that? Will Jim Fergosi work out? And I'm like, yeah, that that's great. Just get a player, you know. And the and the camera guy goes, I don't care who you get. I just need a player with the kids. So he asks Fergosi. Fergosi comes out. He poses for a couple of pictures, and then I go home that day, and my parents are like, Hey, how'd you do today? I'm like, Oh, I did pretty good. You know, I got whatever seventy six autographs of the Mets. You know, and and I, by the way, so I tell them what happened and they just, they, they freak out. You know, they're like, they, they could see what was going to happen the next day. I, I didn't, I still didn't know. So the next day my mom drives me to school. I think she stops at the white hen pantry. I use all my lunch money, you know, <laughs> to buy as many copies of the paper as I can. Cause there I am on page 14, wow. like the whole page and Bob green titled it waiting for a sign. And, uh, and he writes the column on me ditching school from Algonquin Middle School. So my mom grabs the paper. She said, you're not walking into school with those. And she, she says, you can have them when you get home, but you're not going to school. And don't tell anybody what you did yesterday. I'm like, okay. So I go in and, and uh, they announce, you know, over the loudspeaker system, they announce the day's, you know, events. And then Mr. Zangi, who was the vice principal in charge of student discipline, he never got on the loudspeaker, but he did that day. And he said, Kevin Keating, report to Mr. Zangi's <laughs> office immediately. Kevin Keating, report to Mr. Zangi's office immediately. And all the kids looked at me like I killed somebody or something, you know, like they knew this was a big deal. So I walk in there and I get to the office and all the secretaries are looking at me like I'm a dead man walking, you know, <laughs> And I get to the door and the door's halfway open. And before I could knock, and he never looked up at me, but he knew I was there. And he said, come in. So I went in there and he's got the paper spread out on his desk. He's got my mom's note next to the paper <laughs> and he's got his glasses perched on the edge of his nose. He never looks up at me and he goes, so Kevin, you weren't in school yesterday. Can you tell me where you were? And I look at the paper and I'm thinking, you know, it's probably a good idea to just come clean and, and yeah, take they already it, know. Yeah, take it on the chin. So I said, well, I was in Chicago getting autographs of the New York Mets. He goes, I know that. And he started <laughs> screaming at me. And he goes, do you know, I just got off the phone with the superintendent of the school district. And he said, I should suspend you right now. And now at that point, I'm scared, you know, and I start shaking. I didn't know what to say. And he goes, but I'm not going to do that as long as you promise me that as long as you're at Algonquin Middle School, you're never going to do that again. And I'm thinking, man, I'm graduating in three weeks. I'm going <laughs> to high school. I can make that promise all day long. I'm like, yes, sir. No problem. And he goes, now get the hell out of here. And he shoes me away and I turn around. I'm trying to make my way out the door and I don't quite get there before I hear a different voice from him. And he says, hey, Kevin. And I turned around. I'm like, yes, sir. And he goes, uh, by the way, did you did you get Yogi Berra's autograph? And Berra was the manager of the Mets at the time. And I said, yes, sir. I got him three times. And he goes, you know, when I was a kid, he was my favorite player. And he kind of winked at me. And, and that was his way of letting me know that, you know, I get it, but That's I still, cool. I still have to, to do this to you and punish you, you know, so please understand that. And, um, I like telling this part of that story, which happened much later. So volume one came out. And I wanted to know if Mr. Zengi was still alive because that was really a pivotal, that was a pivotal moment in my life because as soon as that article came out and all that happened to me and my, my, my peers who actually, the ones who knew I did this thought I was strange, right? They really did. No one did this back then. And so they thought I was weird. But when the article came out, 
suddenly I was like a little bit of a celebrity in eighth grade because of Bob Green's article waiting Everyone for Everyone read son. the paper back there, right? They right did. They That's, did. Yeah. They all read Bob Green's Everyone. Cop. Everybody <laughs> did. The Chicago Sun-Times is like the New York Times, the yeah. Washington Post in Chicago. And Green was a big columnist, and he became very famous later on. He wrote Hang Time, which is a definitive biography mm -hmm. with, with Michael Jordan. But anyway, um, so, you know, it changed my life because it affirmed what I was doing was okay. Like, I was at a pivotal time as an eighth grader going into high school, going into adolescence. I didn't really, you know, I might not have continued to collect autographs. I might have just, you know, given it up at some point. But it it. I, I, it it gave me the green light that, you know, this is cool. Whether other people do it or not, it's cool. It's acceptable. People think it's cool now because Bob Green affirmed it. And so when when Volume 1 came out, I went on Facebook, and a lot of people were coming out of the woodwork that I hadn't been in touch with for decades. And I asked the question, does anybody know if Dale Zangie is still alive, and how can I reach him? Anyway, I got him a copy of Volume 1. And since then, you know, we've been in multiple correspondences with each other. Amazing. He's in his mid 80s. And I've been in touch with Bob Green, too. In fact, he did a blurb, which is part of it's on the back cover of volume two. And he told me he was thrilled to read volume one. And he said, I liked it so much. I bought a bunch and gave them to friends, you know, for Christmas gifts. And anyway, he was shocked to find out what had happened to my life and how that column that he'd long forgotten about, you know, had actually been a pivotal part of my life. So it propelled you into a profession of, of autographs. Yeah. Who would, yeah. you know, who could have predicted that? Right. Yeah. Well, I want to take it back a level too and give some credit to your parents for allowing you to play hooky <laughs> once a month. Yeah. And I, I've addressed all the, the listeners out there who have kids to help them pursue their passion of collecting. I mean, that's a great lesson or, or a great example yeah. of what can happen when you, you enable your kids to, follow their passions even if it is perceived to be a little different from, from yeah. the crowd so that's that's really uh hats off to the to your parents for that one um all right so within the autograph collecting world we know it's very similar to any other collecting pursuit you have to be committed and i know in your years at, at psa and and working through psa autograph you've come across a number of amazing autographs rare autographs stuff you probably never thought you'd see in person um, there's one particular story that I would like you to tell about uh, a trade show. I believe it was in Philadelphia. 2017. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Philly show. Yeah. Philly show, uh, where you uh, were able to authenticate a pretty incredible piece that I think a lot of baseball fans would recognize the name immediately from. Yeah, Moonlight Graham is yeah. the name. So, um, yeah, th th this really struck me. I I'm at the show, and, you know, when you work a show like we do, you know, you're behind a curtain, you're, you're sequestered um, so you can concentrate on what you're doing. And you have people out front who are getting, you know, interfacing with the customers and getting the submissions and they bring them back to you. So the orders will come in various forms. And a lot of times they're in PSA bags by the time that we get to them. So you grab a bag and you don't know what you're going to see. You know, it's like what Forrest Gump says, you know, life's like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. So you open up the bag and you're, 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 you're looking immediately and trying to figure out, well, what is it? What is it I'm supposed to authenticate? So I open up this bag and I see this yearbook in there and that's all that's in there. So I'm like, okay, there's an autograph in the yearbook I'm supposed to say. And so I, I look at the front and the front cover says Ranger and it's a, a Ranger is the title of, I guess, the school or the school mascot or whatever, or the, just the yearbook maybe, but it's from Chisholm, Chisholm, Minnesota. So as soon as I saw Chisholm, Minnesota, I knew immediately the only person in the world from Chisholm, Minnesota, whose autograph anyone would want 
that I'm aware of is Moonlight Grand. You, you had the Kevin Costner face at that point. Right. right? It, as soon as it clicked. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, and so I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to find Moonlight Graham's autograph in here because he was the town doctor, you know, and, and his nickname was Moonlight because he played two innings in 1905 for the New York Giants. And that was the, the, the entirety of his Major League Baseball career. And he was moonlighting. He called, was called Moonlight because at night he would go to medical school because he really wanted to be a doctor. And and he actually became an MD, I guess, in uh, late 1905, that same year. And then he went to ended up in Chisholm, Minnesota, where he practiced medicine. And he was the school, you know, he, he was a, the, the doctor for all the schools and the school so district. essentially no reason to, to get his autograph. None, no, none uh, whatsoever. His playing career was completely. Yeah, uh, it was forgotten. Yeah. It was forgotten basically as soon as it happened, you know. And no one collected what we call one game wonders. No one collected those people back then in, in his lifetime. So he lived a prominent life in a small town, mm -hmm. but he was Doc Graham, and much like he was portrayed in the movie. And the only thing that made him famous really was the movie, right? The movie came out and that brought his 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 name to life. And as soon as the movie came out, I started looking for his autograph. Yeah. I wanted one. And he died in 1965. And, it, and to this day, in all my searches, I, I was able to own one, which I still have. Um, but I've seen less than 10. It's it's just enormously rare. And I'm sure he signed plenty of prescriptions and things like mm -hmm. that. But, but who he was, scribbled those, obviously. Well, obviously, yeah. yeah. But who would have saved them anyway, yeah. right? Like, they would have been thrown out. What, uh, what year was that trade show? So this was, I think, 2018. So okay. back back to the uh, yearbook. So I'm looking through the yearbook, and I'm going page by page. And the thing's got 100-plus autographs in this. I'm reading every one. And finally, I get to the page, and there it is, man. I think A.W. Graham, M.D. And I'm like, wow, there it is. And I think to myself, I got to know what the backstory is on this thing. Like, how did this thing come to me? Like, who has it? How Was it, was it a family member? So and this is the great part of the story for me, because this is where the pursuit of collectors and the dedication comes through. Yeah. And I and I put this as an example of that. I put it in volume two because it is so extraordinary how, what this guy went through to get this autograph. So I'm just presuming that it's some family member who, you know, had a, a grandfather who went to the high school. You know, I'm thinking it's something like that. But I go out, you know, I, I do the authentication. I go out. I talk to customer service. I'm like. Who dropped this off? I want to meet them. Yeah, they're, they're around. They're going to come back in about an hour. I'm like, well, when they come back, it, it was I found out it was a husband and wife. When they come back, would you please let me know? I want to meet them. Sure. So they come back. I come out. Um, I introduce myself. I say, uh, hey, I had the pleasure of authenticating your yearbook. That's an exceptional piece. I don't know if you realize how rare this autograph is, but it's really, really rare. Would you mind telling me how you came about it? And of course, I'm directing it to, um, to you know, to the couple, and you know, they start laughing, you know, and and he says, you know, honey, why don't you tell them the story? So it turns out that I think it's Jonathan Algird was the name of the gentleman, and as soon as the movie came out, he wanted an autograph, and he realized how hard it was to find one. He couldn't find one; no one could, right? So he took it upon himself that for whatever it was, like. 20 years plus every school yearbook from chisholm minnesota that was ever sold on ebay he would buy that yearbook wow and he would not say why he wouldn't alert the seller what 
what it was he was looking for that was in there because he didn't want to tip them off. So he just randomly would, would scour eBay and make sure that he was the winning bidder on all Chisholm, Minnesota school yearbooks that came up for sale that were from the time period that he was the doctor for that school district. And he ended up, according to his wife, he bought 20-something yearbooks, you know. <laughs> and this last one that he bought, if I remember right, he paid like $7. I was going to ask, like, yeah. what does a, a, a Chisholm, Minnesota yearbook? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. When you just said that, I just pulled up eBay on my computer, and I'm trying to see if there's any on here. Yeah, there yeah, actually yeah. are. There are a couple. There it's, you go. Yeah, yeah. Around, like, yeah. Like 7 bucks, and I think it, he said it cost more to have it shipped. The shipping cost more than the actual yearbook. And he said, when I got the yearbook this time, you know, I was so jaded by all the failures over the years that it sat on my desk for like almost two weeks. Really? And I didn't even open I, it. Oh, man, I could think of that as the ultimate mail day. Like you, <laughs> you finally get one to pop up. It's been 20 plus years. And it's just like, that's the, the itch you have to scratch at well, this he, point. Yeah. But he'd open like 20 of them. And, yeah, and he, every time it's a, it's a, it's a, it is it's like, a no, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, so I the, guess he, you're right. Yeah. That, that disappointment yeah. counts. But. So he's like, he wasn't expecting it, right? And he yeah. said, so I'm going through it. I'm going through it. And there it is. And he said, so, you know, surprise, surprise. But he finally found his white whale. And to me, that story, I mean, first of all, the creativity, you know, for him to think, outside of the box and to look that way. And then the perseverance, you know, exactly. and, and the amount of like elbow, elbow, you know, um, elbow grease that he put into it, you know, to, to make it work. Like he never gave up and he just kept going and going and going. Yeah. And finally it paid off. The payoff know? is where it's at. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And now he has what you've seen fewer than 10. Yeah. yeah. You know, less than yeah. 10 yeah. examples. That, yeah. That, that's, that's remarkable. I'm looking at one yeah. from 1929 this old recently. I don't know if this has his autograph, but what a what a cool pursuit. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but that and the creativity you have to be. I yeah, mean, yeah, you yeah. Think and, a little differently when you're. Yeah, and that just shows you how dedicated you know a collector can be. And I, I do want to speak to an autograph in general because, you know, we deal with all these different types of collectibles, and I'm often asked like, what what is it about an autograph? And to me, the thing about an autograph is you know, it's great when you can get it in person, right? Because then you have the memory of the interaction, whatever that might be. But you don't have to meet the person to get an autograph. Like, I own a George Washington autograph. I don't know how many hands it's passed through, but I own it. I know it's authentic. And to me, an autograph, whether you got it in person or not, if you get it in person, you have the memory of the interaction. But if you just own the autograph, when you think about it, you actually own a moment of somebody's life because they created that. And you have a physical connection to that person. You know, you can touch that and they created that. And that's something they touched as well. And to me, it's that physical connection and yeah. owning a moment of somebody's life that makes an autograph completely unique from other things that you can collect. And that's what I, what makes it really special for me. That's well said. Yeah. And I think anything you can get when you, you phrase it perfectly, a moment of someone's life. I mean, George Washington, his life was incredible and to think that you have even if it was a split second or a couple seconds of his life that is something incredibly valuable just yep. on the surface right. i've, I've yeah. always found that interesting especially when it's like a physical item like a ball the fact that you know that that person held exactly. that ball like there's there's something to that where you know talk we talk about modern cards all the time and, and like sticker autographs right mm -hmm. i always love the on card not just because of the look but the fact that i know someone you know held that card down on the yes. table and like 
had to handle it themselves as opposed to just a sheet of stickers where exactly. they're signing a million of them. Exactly. Like, there's a there's a connection there. Yep. yep. Yeah. Earlier you talked about through the mail autographs, and I think as a transition, we should talk about some of the tips that you have uh, learned over the course of your your life and and engaging uh, athletes, baseball players through the mail. I you know gravitated to, towards one story that you told in the store in the book about your approach, and you were thinking about how how can I amass autographs. Uh, faster at a faster rate and what approach might I take? And you did a little experiment. Can you talk about that and maybe the lessons that you learned out of it? Sure. So I decided that it was going to be my goal to get 50 autographs of every hall of famer who answered their mail. And I was typically sending about 50. Five, yeah, <laughs> 50. 50. Yeah. And that was because <laughs> someone had thrown that number out to me and I thought it sounded like a good number. Uh, but uh, anyway. And how old were you at the time? <laughs> uh, yeah, I obviously was a young, young yeah, boy. Yeah. But um, so that was my aspiration. And I thought, well, you know, if I do it the way I'm doing it now, I'm getting like five. I'm trying to get five per letter. Maybe if I increase it, I'll have to send out less letters because, I mean, I was on a very limited budget. You know, I was getting, I think it was like a dollar a week as my allowance. And, you know, when you add up postage and everything, it, it just wasn't going to be feasible. So I needed to come up with a new plan. So I thought, well, let me try maybe as many as 15. Let me see if 15 is a good number to send. So I thought, well, if I'm going to send 15, I don't want to start with someone like Joe DiMaggio who probably gets a lot of mail. Let me try with a lesser known Hall of Famer like Stan Kovaleski. You know, Stan's probably sitting around looking for the mail to show up every day. So he's got something to do. That was kind of what I thought. So I plopped because, like as you described, he's a B level Hall of Famer. Yeah, B level Hall of Famer. You know, he's not going to get the mail that Dizzy Dean gets or Joe DiMaggio. That's what I surmised anyway. So I I popped in fifteen, you know, index cards, and I'd written a stand before. So I wrote him my standard, you know, pretty standard, um, perfunctory, you know, letter, which was always polite and and you know thankful and gratuitous. So I send that off with the 15 index cards and I get him back, you know, on time within a week or so, which is usually his norm. And they're all signed. And he even threw in a signed gold Hall of Fame plaque, which he would usually do. So now I had 16 in the letter and I was thrilled. But there was an additional index card with a very brief message to me written in, in handwriting that wasn't his. And it said, uh, Dear Mr. Keating, um, Mr. Kovaleski, it's lots of mail. It keeps him quite busy. <laughs> um, we'd appreciate it in the future if you would only send two or three items, but not 15. And I thought, I thought, well, I wonder who wrote that to me. And wasn't that nice that he still signed the 15 and what looking back on it, what to me was the most remark is the most remarkable thing is, is, and I came to learn later that the handwriting is of his wife's Francis, uh, Kovaleski. I didn't know it at the time, but I've since determined that as someone who looks at handwriting now as an expert, but, um, uh, I, I think what most remarkably, she didn't discourage me from writing again. She simply ex- expounded that, you know, it's really kind of rude to ask for too many at one time, you know, be a little more polite. And, and it really taught me a lesson that a lot of times, you know, it's easy to cross social acceptable social norms without knowing it. So it's better to be kind of sensitive and anticipate things rather than be aggressive and, and push yourself, you know, maybe a little too far. So I think I learned a really valuable lesson at that time that I've applied to other things as well. Yeah. And actually at the back of the book, you have a list of tips for, for collectors. And I think one that stood out to me was the fact that they're giving you a a piece of their time, something we just spoke about. It's like, 
you, know, you, you have to be respectful of that and it's a gift to you for them to take the time to, to give you an autograph. So to be respectful in that, in that way yeah. is important. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I would add that um, fans need to understand that players are people too. And if you have a bad encounter, you know, it doesn't mean the guy's a bad guy. You might've gotten him on a terrible day. You don't know, but the reality of it is players don't owe you a thing. If they stop and give you a sign, consider it a gift. And if they don't, they don't, you know, yeah. but you're actually, you may be really intruding on a delicate moment in their life when you're approaching them for something you just don't mm -hmm. know. So you really have to stay respectful and understand that. Yeah. I had a, I had a bad interaction with a, with an athlete when I was really young and I held it like against them for so long until I was older and had a little bit more perspective. Yeah. But on the flip side, you know, an athlete takes a few seconds. That's something that kind of no matter your age, you can you hold on to that forever exactly. as, as a feather in their cap in your eyes. Like that's, yes. that'll, that'll, that'll stay there forever. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the like, I think the last little anecdote I'd like you to, or, or story I'd like you to tell, and there's so many in this, in this book, can't recommend it enough, but is, is a regarding Mark McGuire and interaction that you had with him in the kingdom in 1987, but also, and just as equally important, your friend had accompanied you. And so I like this story because it shows the psychology and perspective of a collector versus the common sports fan. And as collectors, we know we're a different breed. We have a little bit more, um, uh, I don't know, let's just say direction towards what our, our goals are, and we stick to it until they're, they're finished. And that kind of puts us in a, a certain um, a trajectory uh, to, to achieve our goals. So that can kind of be, you know, give us a little tunnel vision in terms of what happened. I'm not saying you had tunnel vision in this respect, <laughs> Kevin. I guess what I'm saying is just like different perspectives based on being a collector versus being a casual sports fan. So to set it up a little bit, you had gotten to the game early in batting practice. You had actually caught a Mark McGuire home run ball during on that a fly, bat. On the fly. My, oh, hurt my, your hand. In my glove, <laughs> in my, my glove, my, my glove hand stung for at least 20 minutes i mean, I mean was, this is peak mcguire this is like 87 mcguire yeah. he's just mashing yeah, yeah. young mcguire yeah. 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 yeah i shouldn't say peak since he hit 70 home runs in 1998 but you, you know what i mean like young mcguire he had yeah. 49 that year and set the rookie record and, yeah. and i wanted to go to that game because he was chasing the record and that was the night that he actually tied it in the game he wow. had a home run and I, I and i caught a batting practice home run ball and of course you know, as soon as I got that ball, I knew I had to get it signed. That was the thing. I couldn't wait till the game was over so I could get it signed, right? That was my goal anyway. So go ahead, Steve. Well, Steve, you also got a second ball because also mentioned in the book, you are a pro at, at getting balls, uh, foul balls, uh, ah. balls in play, or home run balls at, at, at pro, pro games, uh, professional uh, baseball games. But so long story short, you had two balls. You were, de you were, um, convinced or not convinced you were determined. You were determined. That's the word to get these autographed after the game. So why don't you pick it up from here? And, uh, I would like to tell your friend's perspective. So, so my buddy is Bob Forbes and Bob and I had gone way back. We, we'd gone to West point together. We were stationed together, um, at Fort Lewis and he had just left the service as a captain. I was a captain at the time. I was a company commander, um, in charge of 129 man infant motorized infantry company. So I had a pretty responsible job at that point in my life. And, and Bob had just left. He was going to grad school at the university of Washington and he joined me at the game. And as he puts it, he showed up like a sane person at game time. Whereas I had gone early to go to batting practice and try to get home run balls, which I had. So he shows up and I've got these two balls and I tell him this one I want, cause this is Mark McGuire's home run ball that I caught. I'm going to get it signed. 
and this one I'll give to you and you can get it signed. And he's like, I've never gotten an autograph. And I'm like, well, you're going to get some tonight, you know, because we're going to wait after the game to get these autographs. So anyway, the game, you know, Mark, Mark McGuire does make history that night. He gets a home run, ties the rookie record, which I think was at time 38 held by Wally Berger. And, uh, and we wait after the game. And of course, Bob's never done any of this before. And he finds it very, very foreign and odd and, He's, he's, I would say it wouldn't be an exaggeration. He was very uncomfortable as a grown man to be approaching other grown men, asking them to do something like sign a baseball for him. But he did it, you know, um, and he did it at my behest. I would point to him and go, there's one, go get him. And he go get him because <laughs> I wasn't going to get any autographs except McGuire. I just yeah. wanted McGuire on the ball and that was it. So I'm directing him and he's getting eight, 10, whatever autographs, including Reggie Jackson. And, uh, and we're all waiting for the big man to show up. Of course, he's probably doing a press conference because he came out just about last. And so he shows up and he's mobbed. There's like 100, 150 people. And, um, and I just, you know, I'm standing there and, and I keep positioning myself amidst the throng of people and getting my ball in just the right position for McGuire to take it from me. And every now and then, you know, in the same voice, I would say, Mr. McGuire, you know, I caught this ball in batting practice. You hit it as a home run. Would you please sign my baseball? So he would know that this is a special item. This is one you should definitely sign, you know, because when guys signing like that, you don't know when they're going to stop, right? They can stop at any moment. And he's working his way, and he did everything he could to avoid my baseball, and I couldn't understand it. And uh, meanwhile, Bob Bob gets him on his ball. You know? mm-hmm. Bob gets him and he's, he walks away and I'm still trying to get my ball signed. And McGuire's, you know, methodically working through everybody and the crowd's thinning out and thinning out. Now there's not many people left. He still won't grab my ball. And at this point, I'm thinking this is deliberate. You know, he, he's heard me enough times. He's seen me. He's not taking my ball. I'm, I'm not going to get this thing signed. And a guy walks up and he goes, hey, Mac, you know, we're parked over here. And he goes, okay, I'll be over there in a second. And I'm thinking, oh, man, he's getting ready to leave. There's the getaway car. You know, it's right over there. His buddies are waiting for him. And he had played the year before in Tacoma, which was where we were stationed Mm -hmm. in Tacoma, Washington, 45 minutes down I-5. And so he's got friends in the area, right? And he's going to go out with them. And I'm thinking, man, it's over. So I I make a tactical decision, and I, I leave the crowd, and I run to the car. And I get to the car and I stand, you know, I stand in the path that he's got to take to get to the car and his friends are inside the car. So now he does break from the crowd. He doesn't sign for everybody. There's maybe 10 or 20 people left that didn't get his autograph and he's walking toward the car, but now it's just me. So I stick the ball out, you know, I'm like, Mr. Mr. McGuire, would you please autograph this baseball before you leave? And I, I don't know. He looked kind of disgusted, but I was between him and the car door and he took the ball and he scribbled his name off and then got in the car and left. And I was thrilled, you know, I still had that baseball um, and I have the memory that goes with it. And so I wrote the chapter and Bob and I have stayed in touch over the years, still a very close friend. And I said, you know, Hey, I wrote this chapter, you know, and, and he's like, I want to read it. He goes, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to read it before you publish. So I said, sure. So I sent him the chapter and he calls me up and he's like, dude, I don't remember that night the way you do. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I have a completely different, you know, perspective on what happened. And I'm like, okay, well, you're entitled to your memory, but I've got mine. And he goes, no, I'll send you my memory. I'm going to write it down. So he sends me his written, his written account of what happened, what transpired. 
And uh, I must say, as I read it, um, his very dry sense of humor came through loud and clear because he's a very sarcastic, very funny, very brilliant man. He was uh, top 5% at West Point. Very, very smart guy, but very dry humor. And uh, and I, I had to publish it. So I, I published his account on the back end of my story just to kind of give a perspective. Yeah, and I think that's I, what Steve's talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not going to do Bob justice here because I think he, he writes it very well. But I'll just summarize a few key points that, that I laughed <laughs> at. One, here it is after the game. I'm, I'm, chasing after uh, my good friend who's a captain in the army to go get <laughs> to, to go get an autograph from a, a, a grown man um, not only that but down the damp dark uh, bowels of the kingdom in some direction I have no idea where I'm heading some random uh, you know hidden exit on the back back end of the stadium which I thought was funny it's like I could just imagine him going down these tunnels <laughs> trying to find Mark McGuire um, Within that, the story, and you told it fairly, like, I think it was clear from Bob's recount that that McGuire was intentionally kind of pivoting away from Kevin and almost like turning his back to him. Like anytime that Kevin would would make the the gesture to, to put the ball in from him, McGuire would very intentionally do a heel turn a turn away <laughs> to to, uh, you know, another person in the group. So he had definitely sensed his presence. I'll just put it that way. And was deliberately, uh, you know, for whatever reason, maybe he just uh, I don't know. Didn't yeah. like army guys. Didn't I don't say, know. Yeah. Say yeah. Any, like, why was he avoiding you in particular? I'm so. But he was. I mean, yeah. I'm telling you, he was. And, yeah. and back then. And, and this is actually my sense of it. You know, he had been in Tacoma uh, and quite possibly he had had a bad experience, you know, okay. being out at a bar or something with army people. I mean, you know, and, and didn't hold it against me personally, but probably he assumed, I'm sure he assumed I was from Fort Lewis, which I was. And I looked like I was from Fort Lewis. It was pretty obvious back then. I mean, people in the army, you could, you could pick them out in a crowd. And he had been living there just the year before. So he probably had a bad, that's my guess, and probably just didn't want anything to do with an army guy, you know. The last part of it was just that, you know, Kevin obviously instinctually picked up the fact that that he was nearing the end of the session. So he he sprints over to the car. And in the book, you describe like, oh, I hold the door for him. Get him into the car. Bob says he 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 blocks the entrance <laughs> to the car, wedging himself in no way can McGuire get past, you know, without physically moving to get that final autograph. Um, and of course, he, he, he obliged and gave you the autograph. But, um, you know, Bob probably tells a little more tightly in the story, but I thought it was just a pretty hilarious account of, of the perspectives of a collector and what you'll go through to get your autograph versus, you know, just the casual sports fan who sees, who sees it as a, a, a fun pursuit, but not necessarily as, as dramatic or, uh, but I think that Bob also at the end, he acknowledges the fact that he learned something that night too. He learned, he realized, you know, the importance to, to a collector, that person being me to, to, to take a moment of history and match it with the autograph, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right. he, he yeah. puts that in the in his closing statement, something to that effect that he recognized that, you know, that that to me, that was so important, you know, yeah. to get that autograph and attach it to that piece of history, you know, as a memento, as a permanent memento from being there that day. And he, he respected that part of it, although he thought it was quite comical, you know, to, to watch it <laughs> unfold. So, uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we go, I just want to mention a couple of the names of the stories that you t uh, tell in the story. Also, in the book, I also wanted to mention that there's a really good introduction where you talk about uh, the the desire of athletes to get the autographs of other either celebrities or um, uh, uh, sports fans as collectors themselves. So that's a nice tie-in to the world of, of sports. Uh, but uh, you have chapters on George Sisler, Don Sutton, 
Roberto Clemente, which is a really great one. Of course, McGuire, Bob Feller, George Brett, Warren Spahn, Buck O'Neill, um, Joe and Phil Necro, Paul Bird, Ted Kubiak, and many more. Kevin, where can you find the book? Can you point you people? Can, you can find it at, at, you can't buy volume two on Amazon yet, but you can buy it at waitingforassignedbook.com, waitingforassignedbook.com, waitingforassignedbook.com. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll throw the link in the description too. Kevin, before you go, I, I do want to ask, um, you know, just kind of, we, we talk so much about cards on this show week to week. And, um, you know, one thing I want to ask about is the the genesis of autographed cards in person. And, you know, for so long, this was such a taboo thing that like if you had, you know, let's say a, a Roberto Clemente rookie card and you had it signed in person, it was looked at as the card was defaced. Whereas right. now... You know, you fast forward all these years later, it's such a special piece yeah. um, that collectors are chasing. When did that, in your eyes, change and what changed that? Well, honestly, I think that what, what really helped propel the change was the PSA set registries for autograph collectors. Mm -hmm. I think that really changed things. Um, but yeah, I, I never understood that because as a kid, to me, my favorite medium for getting autographs on were, were baseball cards. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't think that anything could encapsulate a single autograph better than a baseball card. Um, but yeah, I think it's in the last 10 years or so. I don't know what other factors have really altered that in some ways, but it's to a point now as an authenticator, as you know, the, the principal authenticator for PSA, we see so many signed rookie cards coming in, yeah. like by the hundreds, like Jack Morris rookie cards, right? Alan Trammell rookie cards, which the Trammell card is with Paul Molitor. So you get the dual signed card, you know, you get two and one on that card, but the guys that are still alive and, and able to sign, you know, Rod Crew signed rookie cards, like I think we're getting to a point now where it's going to be more rare to find a non-signed rookie card at this point because everybody's snatching up rookie cards to get them signed. Um, yeah, so I think we've done a real kind of a pendulum swing and a role reversal on that. Um, but I will say that, you know, I don't know what the factor was to, to, to create that tipping point. Uh, natural progression of wanting rare collectibles right maybe yeah, i mean is, yeah. like, could that be part of it I, I think part of it too might be the the manufacturers introducing more on-card autographs and people appreciating yeah, the yeah. aesthetic yeah. of it yeah. yeah um also you know i think of the junk uh wax era which i grew up in and you know 89 griffey rookie card everyone has it but how many people have it autographed yeah and not only that how many people have it in a 10 10 where the autograph is a 10 and the card is a 10 there's extra levels of collecting that autographs adds to a card and when you add in grading registry completionism you know um, it really does add another yeah. layer to it yeah it's, it's funny like we saw a, a couple months ago 1948 leaf i believe it was uh jackie robinson that came through and it was signed and i just remember being so stunned by how cool that was and i was like can you imagine a time when that was frowned upon, like that card being oh, signed. Like, oh yeah. Well, how about how about this one? How about this one? You guys know who Hal Newhouser is. Mm -hmm. Hal Newhouser is a Hall of Fame pitcher. And he won the Cy Young, uh, not Cy Young. He won the MVP, the American League MVP, as a pitcher two years in a row, as I recall, in the mid '40s. And he lived, you know, a, a full life. I mean, I met him many times at, at the Hall of Fame. He's an old guy. He lived, I think, into his early '80s. And you could get him through the mail and he'd sign for nothing, you know, and his autograph on an index card on eBay, you could probably find one today if you looked hard enough for 10 bucks, maybe 20, but a signed rookie card of his, like, and I think his rookie card is a 48 
omen or leaf or something, but it's a 40s card. And, you, you know, a signed rookie card to him, I believe, recently sold for almost $40,000. And the, and the reason is because, and this is to your point, Ryan, the reason is because no one was getting cards signed. Yeah. Even as recently, I mean, he died, I want to say, in the last 20 years. And even as recently as that, no one was getting Hal Newhauser to sign his baseball card. Like, so for the guy looking to try to get all the all rookie cards of Hall of Famers, you know, in their in their set that are signed, get a signed example of them all. They're going to pay whatever it takes to get Hal Newhauser, even though it's like a ten dollar autograph yeah. on an index card. But find it on his rookie card ain't going to happen. There's only a few, right? So that kind of to me. Um, really underscores the transition you're talking about. That's amazing. It really is. Oh. We could talk autographs all day. Um, I think we need to have yeah. Kevin back on. Yeah, yeah, this needs to become a regular segment. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to sure. join us. Once again, the book is Waiting for a Sign, Volume 2. Can't wait to read it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna, especially the McGuire chapter. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I have a, one, my best friend growing up is, a, is an autograph uh you know, Hunter chaser, and Chaser yep. and like it's, I understand as a fellow collector, a look into his mind and, and how that works. And I, I, I look forward to reading more of this. Well, thank you. Yep. Kevin, thank you again so much for taking the time to join us this week for Steve Sloan. I'm Ryan green. We will see you guys again next week back here on the PSA pod.